a conversation with Justice Doherty. This is Prime Law Podcast, your source for good counsel. I'm your host, Andrew Mertzenich, licensed attorney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Prime Law Podcast. This episode is a continuation of our Learning Law series, where we talk to professionals and others in the legal profession to introduce you to the legal profession and understand how it works. My guest today is Justice Eugene Doherty of the Illinois Appellate Court's 4th District. Justice Doherty graduated summa cum laude from the Northern Illinois University School of Law in 1989. After serving as a law clerk to Honorable Philip Reinhardt at the Illinois Appellate Court, Justice Doherty engaged in a civil litigation practice in Rockford, Illinois. In 2007, the Illinois Supreme Court appointed him to the 17th Judicial Circuit Court, a position to which he was later elected in 2008 and retained in 2012 and 2020. He served as Chief Judge of the 17th Judicial Circuit from 2018 through 2021. Justice Doherty is the author of a variety of articles in several legal publications, including the Illinois Bar Journal, and he has been an instructor at the Illinois Education Conference multiple times. He serves on several Supreme Court committees, including serving as chair of the eBusiness Policy Advisory Board and vice chair of the COVID-19 Task Force. In 2022, the Illinois Supreme Court assigned him to the Illinois Appellate Court for the 4th District. Justice Doherty, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Andrew. I'm always happy to have a conversation uh, on a podcast or otherwise with anybody who's interested in learning about the legal system. I do have to state that um, appearing on any podcast or program doesn't constitute an endorsement by me of the host or the law firm or anything like that. But again, the, the point is anybody who wants to have these conversations, I'm glad that there's interest. That's wonderful. And we'll also put a disclaimer at the end because you beat me to the punch on that. <laughs> well, I'd like to talk to you a little bit. Uh, you know, you've had quite a, I won't say long because long implies age, but I'll say you have a lot of experience in the legal profession. Can you tell me a little bit about where you come from? How did you start in the practice of law? Um, after um, graduating from college, I started law school and I had the opportunity in the middle of it to leave for a couple of years and work on Capitol Hill. Uh, in Washington. In, in Washington for a member of Congress, Lynn Martin, who used to represent our area. Um, and that was uh, an experience I would never trade, even though I decided after a couple of years that Washington, D.C. wasn't the place to raise <laughs> a family and that I'd, I'd rather come home and do that being newly married. And so we did. And I went back to law school and I ultimately found that law was the area where uh, lawmaking intersects with people's lives. And so it's not an abstract exercise. It's not passing this bill or supporting this policy. It's seeing how all of that plays out in people's lives. And it worked out for me that I seem to have a, an aptitude at it. Oh, that's so cool. So uh, just to go back a little bit, so what were you just like in a ministry of assistant or was there something more like a full clerkship or? Well, it, I was, um, I did one summer as a um, sort of a summer clerkship like we would do in, in the legal profession. Um, but then I was in the midst of law school hired to work on the legislative staff. Uh, at first I did uh, 
press, but then moved on to doing legislative uh, initiatives. I was there for two years, and uh, it was it was an interesting experience in itself. And so then you returned to law school to finish it out? I did. Uh, when I left law school, the dean at the time, Dean Strickman, I think he'd seen I'd done well in my time there, and he sent a letter saying, if you ever want to come back, just let me know. What a and, great mark. And and it was and it was like a lifeline that I grabbed for when the time was right. And I was very pleased that um, he, he had done that and very pleased to have had the chance to go back and continue law school and do that well. So after law school, of course, as is the as is the trade, you took the bar exam, obviously passed. I did. Um, and my first job, I, I was interviewed for a clerk position with an appellate court justice, Phil Reinhardt. Oh, how, how it's full circle. Exactly. Um, he didn't have a position at the moment. Uh, so we worked out an arrangement where I, I worked on the research department staff in Elgin, which is a staff that serves all the judges on the appellate court. I did that for a year, and then I came back to Rockford, and I did uh, my final year with him in chambers uh, before moving out into private practice. That's really cool. And so, uh, as we said in your intro, you've been in Rockford then for your practice. Uh, what did your practice look like? I did primarily civil litigation, and about half of that was either medical malpractice or other type of tort defense work. Fantastic. With with three health systems in Rockford, plenty of business. Plenty of business. Um, you know, it, it's a challenge because you come out of law school thinking, I'm, I know it all, I'm ready, I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, and then you get a case where they're using terminology that you have no idea what it means. And so there's a, a second learning curve as you learn the substance of the medical cases that you work on. But uh, after a while, that challenge becomes sort of what makes it stay fresh and interesting. I remember uh, one of the one of my mentors when I came out of law school, just past the bar, they said, you are now able to think like a lawyer. You're going to have to learn how to act like a lawyer now. I think that's probably fair. <laughs> so uh, from that career, you, of course, did civil litigation. Did You were the lawyer, the barrister, solicitor, using those fun words. But then eventually you became a judge. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in 2007, um, our um, federal court uh, position was open. And one of our judges locally, Fred Capallo, was appointed to that position. And knowing that that meant that his circuit position would be vacant, um, I expressed interest to the Illinois Supreme Court that I would be interested in taking an appointment to that position. And fortunately, I was chosen for it. Um, and then a year and a half later, I ran an election to keep that position. Fortunately, was chosen then too. So uh, that's actually a great segue into my next question about how judges are picked. So it sounds like in your case, there was an unexpired term or something that you were appointed to fill. Exactly. Okay. And then retention. Can you tell me what that is? Retention is instead of candidate A versus candidate B, it's a up or down vote on only one candidate. So once a judge has been elected in that contested setting or potentially contested setting, then the voters get a chance after uh, for the circuit court after six years to vote yay or nay, do we want to keep this person as a judge? And the judge needs to get 60% in order to, to be retained. And I was retained. Congratulations. Thank People you. like you. Well, we'll see. <laughs> um, so one of the, one of the points of this podcast is to educate people who may not have either much experience or much experience yet 
in the practice of law. Where exactly does a judge fit into the practice of law? Because, uh, you know, there are canons of, of ethics that lawyers follow. There's a, an additional set for judges. Like, what, where, where exactly do judges fit into the practice of law? I think the best place to start is where uh, Chief Justice Roberts started in his confirmation hearing, which is that the judge is the umpire. Judge doesn't suit up in the colors of either team. The judge wears a black robe that's intended to show sameness, meaning from judge to judge. It's intended to show some um, significance of the office, but it's also intended to remove yourself and separate yourself from the parties. The judge is there, like an umpire, to call balls and strikes. It's a lot more complicated than that. The rule book's thicker. <laughs> Just um, a little. <laughs> and the, the, the opportunities are there for more judgment when that judgment is vested in the judge, meaning the judge has discretion to do certain things that makes it different than being uh, an umpire. But fundamentally, that's what the judge is. The two parties come each with, and sometimes more than two, but each with their own view of what's fair, what would be the just outcome. Careful, fair is a four-letter word that begins with F. We don't like those in law. And litigants love that that word <laughs> because very few people come in thinking that the fair result will be to rule for the other side. We all think fairness is on our side, that we, we present to the court with right on our side. And so the judge is in the position of saying, I'm, I can't align with what your view is. I have to find a neutral answer to that question. I have to look at what the law tells me and listen to what the evidence is in the case and come up with an answer that doesn't come from my own uh, whims. It doesn't come from my own predispositions. It comes from a neutral place because that's what the parties are entitled to. They're entitled to a neutral arbitrator. Correct. So interesting. Just this past year, you were, you were I don't want to say removed, but you were moved up to the appellate bench, even though it's an equal you know, branch here of the judicial system, but you were right. moved to a different area of that. Right. So can you tell me a little bit about what is the appellate court system? Sure. So I, I was assigned as a circuit judge to sit on the appellate court. Um, let's go back to the umpire analysis or the football referee. I think people understand what that is. And if you've watched a baseball game or, or, or especially if you've watched a football game, you know that there are times when uh, somebody throws that red challenge flag in football and they say they want to question the umpire's decision. They don't think the umpire got it right. And so it goes to the instant replay booth review. That's what the appellate court is. We don't hear cases. We don't decide things in the first instance. But when people feel like it didn't go the right way at the trial court and they have a reason to argue why it should go differently, they don't get a second trial, but they do get the chance to have the decisions made in the first trial reviewed by an appellate court. And so again, a neutral arbitrator of the neutral arbitrator almost. Right. That's right. Now, do you sit alone or, or is this a panel? How does that work? In the appellate court in Illinois, uh, cases are decided by a three-judge panel. That's Constitution specifies that it's three judges. And the outcome is determined by what at least two of those judges agree. It does more, though, than resolve the case. And that's one of the key differences between the appellate court and the circuit court. 
circuit court's job is really important. You have to resolve the dispute that's in front of you, but then that's done and you move to the next case. The appellate court resolves many of the cases by way of a published opinion, explaining why the case was resolved in a certain way, whether it's affirmed, meaning that the trial court result stays, or if it's reversed, meaning that the the case is sent back. In either case, they're going to say, here's why we're doing this. Here's why. And judges do that in general, but the significance of an appellate court doing that is that that's more in their job description, that they need to put out a product, a, a written decision that guides future cases and future judges, future litigants and lawyers to decide how their case might come out. Um, it's the whole process of the common law, which is by experience and decision, we learn how to apply legal principles because the, the principles may stay the same, but the facts and the wrinkles are different case to case. There's always that nuance. There's always a nuance. And once you've decided a different nuance, it helps maybe decide other cases down the road or at least give guidance. Um, you use the word published opinion. Is there an unpublished opinion? or? Um, not all opinions are published, although now the rules allow even the unpublished opinions to be cited uh, as authority for future decisions. Uh, but when the court publishes an opinion, it's usually because they think that it's reaching an area uh, that needs publication, that there's something new, something novel, um, and it should be put out there as a, as a uh, reference for other people as they encounter that issue down the road. It's almost like the appellate court saying, hey, listen to this. Exactly. Interesting. Fascinating. Um, do you work alone or do you, you said that you were a clerk. Uh, do you have clerks of your own? I do. I have um, two law clerks and one combi combined law clerk and administrative assistant. Okay. And how do they fit in with your decisions? And, I, and by your, I mean appellate sure. court decisions. Well, the, the work of a clerk is to help leverage a judge's time. A judge cannot deal with, cannot produce enough uh, decisions, reviewing the briefs, reviewing the record, drafting I, the I'm familiar opinion. with this litigious society that you're talking about. <laughs> but the, the volume is such that uh, you could hire uh, four judges or you could hire one judge and three law clerks. And it is probably more efficient to do that. So it leverages that judge's time to have assistance in all of those different steps. But at the end of the day, it's the judge whose name goes on the written product. It's the judge's work. So it's not one of those situations where the judge has a rubber stamp and just signs off on what a clerk does. Um, it has to be a process involving judges and clerks that leads to a decision that ultimately is the judges. Cool. Um, so once you decide to, uh, publish an opinion or not publish an opinion. Um, you said it takes two of three. What happens if one judge says, I kind of disagree with this? There, there can be a separate opinion from one judge. That judge might say, I, I disagree. And so that's called a dissenting opinion. And the judge will state in a separate opinion why the judge feels that way. Um, the judge might disagree in part or might agree with the result, but not all the the ways that it was I, I agree with where we went, just not how we got not there. Not how we got there, in, in maybe in part, maybe in whole. And that's called a concurring opinion. And the judge will write a special concurrence to explain why the judge feels 
the legal analysis maybe should have been different, even though it ended up in the same place. Is there any weight to a dissent or a concurrence? Like, do they, I mean, forgive me, they, they lost the vote. What does that they matter? Um, it, as far as the case goes, it matters not because the majority opinion controls the outcome. But as far as potentially a further appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court, um, it may give greater interest. It may show that this is an issue that should be looked at more closely. Um, and in other reviewing courts, looking at the precedent set by the case, may decide that the dissent had the better part of it. So I'm curious if you, you mentioned the Supreme Court now, uh, taking that metaphor of the of the box looking at the umpire's call, where does the Supreme Court fit into this metaphor? Well, the Supreme Court... Is that the uh, Monday morning quarterbacking? In, that, in, this, <laughs> in this metaphor is sort of the league office ah. uh, because the, the court not only reviews decisions generally from the appellate court in the same way the appellate court reviews decisions from the trial court, but it also runs the whole judicial branch. And there are seven justices in Illinois that comprise the uh, Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sets the rules of evidence, it sets the rules of practice, the rules of procedure, it adopts the rules of ethics for lawyers and the canons of ethics for judges. So it is truly the, the top of that judicial pyramid. Just reviewing opinions is just one aspect of what they do. Correct. How does a case move from the appellate court to the Supreme Court? Is it automatic that you could just say, nope, I think fourth district, you got it wrong, I want to go to the Supreme Court? Well. When it comes to an appeal from the circuit court to the appellate court, that's that's generally a matter of right. You do get a right to do that. Just make it happen. The standards are such that it it's not like a do-over. Uh, sometimes there's layers of insulation around that decision that uh, as long as it's within the, the realm of reason, even if the appellate court would would perhaps resolve it differently, that doesn't mean that they'll give a different outcome. Things are different when you go from the appellate court to the Supreme Court because there are only a few types of cases that are appeals as a matter of right to the Supreme Court. And with the the appeals there, it, you're asking for the right to appeal. It's called a petition for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court doesn't take very many of those. I want to say something like 95% of them are rejected. Wow. And that's because the Supreme Court is really thinking about what are the areas of law where we need to step in and, and give a clear answer? Maybe the different districts of the appellate court have given different answers to a question, and it might be important for the Illinois Supreme Court to give the definitive answer to guide all of the courts, all of the lawyers and litigants going forward. Fascinating. Uh, I'm curious in your so, hopefully long tenure, but your so far short tenure right now on the appellate court, any memorable cases so far? Um. You know, I've, I've been on such a short time that uh, I always have to be careful to make sure that they're all out published and beyond the period of reconsideration. But um, cases are, are are interesting in their own ways once you begin to read the record and read the briefs because you begin to put yourself for a moment as you're reading that brief into the perspective of that party and you're trying to understand how they're viewing the case. And so you, you get you get sucked in and and find all of them pretty interesting. That's really cool. Um, I also uh, in your bio that I read very briefly at the front, uh, you are very heavily involved uh, with 
the with the practice of law you serve on several committees um i'm curious how did you get started with that and what keeps you going well the illinois supreme court again being in charge of all the other things is also in charge of those committees and they're the ones that um will uh, tap you on the shoulder and say we'd like you to be on this committee and when you're so notified there's only one proper answer <laughs> and that is when do i start uh and that's fine um i i think Part of it is that when you're on a committee and, and you and you seem to do a, a good job, you may get tapped for another one. That's kind of the way life is. That, uh, you have the usual suspects. And I see that on all the groups that I sit on is that the people who have been asked to help before and have done a good job tend to get more requests. We like what you did. Let's keep it going in right. this aspect. No, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> well, your word's not mine. <laughs> um, so... I'm curious about this. Uh, we just, I don't think we're out of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, there's still, you know, unfortunately, cases are starting to go up again, especially in our county. Um, I'm curious, Has the, obviously the practice of law has changed, uh, but in the appellate court, has it changed much? Have you seen, you know, I'm guessing oral arguments, are they still via teleconference or? Well, I think it's changed in the appellate court in much the same way it's changed in the trial court, which is that for a time, we were forced to do things remotely. And then after a while, the light bulb goes off and you say, maybe we should do things remotely without regard to the need to do them remotely. And I, I think the clear uh, biggest proponents of remote proceedings would be lawyers. Um, they're the ones I, who... I'm a fan. <laughs> it, it, it is no doubt more efficient. And given that this district, we our court is in Springfield, three hours away. There's no question but that doing it remotely has a great efficiency for people who would have to travel that kind of distance. Um, I know people are of different minds as to whether they think it's the same or whether there's some disadvantage to it, but we're finding as judges that it's you begin to forget. You, your mind goes into the issues. You're not... You're not really going through your eyes as much as... You're not saying, is that tie really the one you wanted to wear today? I, I, you could probably you know, take your tie off halfway through and I wouldn't notice because we're thinking <laughs> about the issues and we're working on our questions. Uh, and so it's not so much uh, visual anymore, even though the visual part of it, it, it certainly would, would be much better than listening to somebody argue. Just There's always listening. that performative side of the practice of law. I mean... It could be, although I think that's less true in the appellate court. I think it's much more a matter of how do humans communicate. And I think visually and by sound is much more like we normally communicate than just one or the other. So it is, I think, more effective to have a conversation with somebody when you can see their reaction. So do you still have to travel down to Springfield at all? Yeah, uh, sometimes. It's just that the frequency is less because of the number of uh, Zoom arguments. I'm sure your budget for gas is appreciated for that. Uh, well, th the state's budget for okay, gas. Okay, the state's budget for yeah. gas. We'll put yeah. it that way. Um, wonderful. Well, that's all the questions I have, but I always like to ask my guests one question that they can't prepare for because I like it off the top okay. of their head. But don't worry, it's nothing too uh, engrossing. If there was anything that you wanted to say to the world, what would it be? Well, I'm going to stick to the legal system. Nothing wrong with that. Um, 
I think sometimes people can be frustrated with the legal system because they they may come at it through a result that they don't like. In other words, they don't sit down on a day when there's no issue of their uh, uh, in their lives that's uh, on the on the front burner today. They haven't read about a story. That would be the way to sit down and say, "I'd like to make a decision about how the justice system works." If you come at it by saying, here's an outcome that I don't like, even though I didn't hear all the evidence and I don't know all the facts, but I'm uncomfortable with the outcome and then judge the legal system. Well, we know how that judgment will come out. Uh, The legal system needs to be judged by several things. At its core, it provides an answer. Same way flipping a coin would, right? It's much better than parties meeting in the parking lot with with baseball bats. That would resolve the case too. But what adds to that resolution is that neutral fairness. And fairness is never there if you think the rules are being made up when the parties show up, that the rules are being crafted based on who's there, based on who's asking, based on who's deciding. The rules have to exist separate and apart from the courtroom and be applied in the courtroom in a way that people feel as though win or lose, they lost because that's what the rules are. Um, and I know that there are judgments about the legal system. I wish people had the opportunity to see it up close. People who do that as a juror actually tend to come away more impressed with the system than they came in. My guest today is Justice Eugene Doherty of the Illinois Appellate Court's 4th District. Thank you, Justice Doherty, for spending some time with me. Thank you. To learn more about Justice Doherty and his distinguished career, you can go to the Illinois Court's website and view his bio there. With that, we have reached the end of another episode of Prime Law Podcast. I'm so happy you were able to spend some time with me on this one. And I certainly have enjoyed these episodes in our learning law series. It's been fun to talk to our guests. Our next episode will return a bit to our roots, but I certainly hope you'll enjoy our next guest once we are able to book them. So with that, I'm your host, Andrew Mertzenich. We'll see you next time. Congratulations, you've reached the disclaimer. This podcast is a production of Prime Law Group, LLC, who are attorneys licensed only in the states of Illinois and Wisconsin. The primary purpose of this podcast is educational in nature and does not constitute legal advice of any kind. While we love that you are a regular listener, please note that no attorney-client relationship is created by you listening or acting upon anything you hear in this podcast. References to any specific product or service does not function as an endorsement or recommendation of the same. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the show are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, any entity they represent, or any endorsement by them of Prime Law Group, LLC. For more information, go to www.primelawgroup.com or call 708-76-MYPOD.